chapter 3 this morning. Daniel chapter 3. Um, for those who have been with us from the beginning, and maybe yeah, just for a little bit of review this morning, I want to remind you that Daniel is a Jewish man who has been taken captive along with three that we know of of his compadres, uh, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. Uh, unfortunately, they're better off known as uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These three men, along with Daniel, have been taken from their homeland. They've been taken from Israel uh, because of the disobedience of the Israelite people. God has promised in His Word, uh, you know, we talk about God's promises to us in His Word, and many times we focus on the ones of blessing. Uh, but in the Old Testament and the Old Covenant that God made with Israel, His blessing upon their lives was based upon their obedience. If they were disobedient, there were curses involved. And the list of curses was actually a lot longer and more specific than the list of blessing. And that was because he had called them apart to be different than all the other nations. And you've heard the adage, and it's really scripture, to whom much is given, much is required. To those who know the truth, uh, they can obey it and be blessed by it. And to those who know the truth and disobey it, there's, there's uh, some negative, there's consequences. To know what to do and not to do it is, is a, a thing that is punishable. There's consequences for that. And so God's people are, are really no different. And many times, unfortunately, because we live in a culture that has kind of gone to the postmodern or even post-Christian, I would call it, we are no longer a nation that is majorly based on Christian ethic because the majority rules says at this point, everyone does what is right in their own eyes. And so because of that, many times as believers, we have to be careful that we don't point at culture and go, I can't believe they're disobeying God. Many of them have our generation separated from a godly inheritance, and so they cannot obey the truth that they've not been shown or taught. But judgment begins in the house of the Lord. We first will be judged based on what we have done, based on either disobeying or obeying the Lord. And so all of that said, Daniel is a man who has been taken from his, his home nation, his home place of living, his family, and his culture, and assimilated into the Babylonian culture. But God's given him favor. God's given these other three men who are with him favor. And as a result of that, every time they are tested in their faith, when they obey the Lord, they end up getting promoted in this godless society. I, I say godless, but they had many gods that they worshipped. So when they say, I will not eat the food that you guys eat, God blesses them. They do it respectfully. When they, in the second chapter, there's a decree by the king to go and kill all of the king's advisors, one of which is Daniel. The other three are Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. And all of these men are decreed to be killed because some of those that are the astrologers and the magicians and all the advisors of the king are told by Nebuchadnezzar, I want you to tell me what I dreamed last night, because it's a dream that disturbed me, and I want you to interpret it for me. Not just the interpretation, but also the dream that I had. And so basically, one of the advisors says, well, I can't tell you what you dreamed. No king has ever asked this. And so because of that, he goes, you know what? 
If you're not going to tell me the dream and its interpretation, I'm going to tear you limb from limb, and your houses will become ash heaps. Kind of a manic, depressive kind of guy, right? Like, hey, you guys are my advisors. Until you don't do what I say, and I'm going to kill you. And I'm going to destroy your households and your families. And so as a result of that, uh, Daniel finds out that this decree has been made, and he beseeches the guy that's been dispatched to go and kill him, and he says, why is the king making such a hasty decision? Let me go, if you'll do so. Give me time to pray to my God, and I will find out what the dream is. Perhaps he will reveal it to me, and then I will give the interpretation. And so he goes back to Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael, and he prays with them. And as a result of their little prayer meeting, God reveals this hidden wisdom that only God could know. He's the only one who knows men's hearts and what's in them. And he reveals this dream, and then as a result of that, gives the dream to the king and ends up not only saving these four men, but all of the other advisors. He says, don't kill all of your advisors. Instead, save their lives because I will tell you the dream and I will tell you its interpretation. So in the meantime, he tells them the dream, but what I want to point out in chapter 2, verse 29 and 30, here's the reason that God revealed this dream to Nebuchadnezzar. Do you know that God desires to reveal himself to everyone who will give him ear? Not just people that are from families of Christians, not just from families of people that are trying to do good, but also to ungodly rulers and kings. God wants to reveal himself to anyone who will listen. He is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to a relationship with him that leads to everlasting life. Everyone. So think of the most ungodly person you know. Do you know that God wants to reveal to them what's really in their hearts? He does. Chapter 2, verse 29, he says, As for you, this is speaking, Daniel speaking, As for you, O king, thoughts came to your mind while on your bed about what would come to pass after this. In other words, what's going to be of your kingdom and of your future? Now, many of us wonder about our futures, what's going to happen to our little kingdoms. Uh, we, we stay up nights sometimes if we're not focused on the right things. We're worried about how our lineage is going to continue on or how our children are going to do. Well, this king is no different. You were wondering about what would come to pass after this. And he says, he who reveals secrets has made known to you what will be. In other words, God has revealed the future. Verse 30, but as for me, this secret has not been revealed to me because I have more wisdom than anyone living. It's not been revealed to Daniel because he's something special, because he's got more wisdom. He says, instead, for our sakes, who make known the interpretation of the king, in other words, to save our lives, and that you may know the thoughts of your heart. Did you know that King Nebuchadnezzar didn't know his own heart? Jeremiah, the prophet in the Old Testament, said this, Who can know man's heart? It is deceitfully wicked above all things. We can't know our own hearts. That's why I kind of despise Disney. Because Disney, in all of its movies, says, follow your heart. I can't follow something that I don't know. But I can follow a God who has revealed himself to me, who has made himself known. So subtle things in our culture are just as ungodly as Nebuchadnezzar was. Nebuchadnezzar was following what was in his heart, but he didn't even know what his heart had to say. So 
God reveals his heart to him in a dream. He doesn't know what the dream means, and so he seeks an interpretation. And Daniel seeks the Lord, and the Lord gives an interpretation. And he describes this huge statue. He, he describes its head made of gold, symbolizing Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom. He describes this silver chest and arms of this statue, a less refined gold or a less refined metal. And then he describes the the belly and the thighs that are made of bronze, signifying this bronze kingdom that would be split. Think about it as a historical picture. And then he describes the legs that are made of iron. And then he describes the, the feet. Now think about feet. Your feet are kind of important for standing up, right? Well, the feet are made out of iron mixed with clay. Not what you would want to build a building out of. You would not build a building out of iron and clay. It would crumble at the least bit of vibration. And so you see, as, as the statue comes from Nebuchadnezzar, it shows that Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom has an end to it. It's taken over by another kingdom, and we know this to, from his, history to be the Medes and the Persians. And then the bronze is another kingdom, and then the iron is actually another kingdom, and then the iron and the clay. And I didn't write down what they were, and I kind of forgot what they were. But the main point of the story is that at the end of the dream and its interpretation, there's a rock that has nothing to do with the statue that's cut from a mountain without man's hands. So it's kind of a trippy dream if you think about it. All of a sudden, there's this rock that comes out of nowhere that's been cut out of a mountain, not with man's hands, and it strikes the feet of this statue and crushes not only the feet that are made of iron and clay, but everything that it holds up. So the ideologies and the the kingdom of Babylon is short-lived, and every kingdom after that becomes less and less strong. But on top of that, they are all destroyed by this rock that seemingly comes out of nowhere, and we know this rock to be the chief cornerstone, despised and rejected, On whom it falls, it will crush, and on whom the person that would fall upon this rock would be ground to powder. And and there'd be humility coming out of us falling upon Jesus as our Savior. And so all of that, if you want to get a better synopsis of that, it was in last, excuse me, two weeks ago's message. But the main message from the dream was, uh, O king, your kingdom is temporary, it will be defeated, and it was given to you. First and foremost, you need to know it was given to you by God. You did not make this kingdom for yourself. God has given it to you in his grace. So chapter 2, verse 46 through 49. He says, Then King Nebuchadnezzar, after hearing the interpretation, fell on his face prostrate before Daniel. Now, he didn't do this on accident, by the way. Just this week, we were uh, under the weather, sitting on our uh, respective chairs, kind of just resting. The kids are running around. Lucy's sick. She's coughing. And then in the meantime, uh, in between every two minutes, there's a a burst of 10 coughs from Lucy. You know, when your kids are sick, like every cough is like a little silent death to you because it just grieves you. Number one, because they're sick. And number two, because you're tired of hearing it. Let's be honest. And then on top of that, we're thinking, okay, everything's fine. And then all of a sudden, Judah comes running from the kitchen through the dining room and trips over nothing and falls flat on his face. This is not what Nebuchadnezzar was doing. He didn't trip over a rock, although in some ways in his dream, he did trip over a rock. Nebuchadnezzar threw himself down to the ground in a position of worship. And it says there, 
he fell on his face, prostrate before Daniel, and commanded that they should present an offering and incense to him, as if they're worshiping him like a god. But this is the pagan culture they're in. Someone tells you the, the instruction of a dream or something, you worship them. And the king answered Daniel and said, Truly, your God is the God of gods, the Lord of kings, and a revealer of secrets, since you could reveal this secret. Then the king promoted Daniel, gave him many great gifts, and he made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief administrator over all the wise men of Babylon. So he's not just another one of his advisors, but he's chief over all of the advisors. So he's promoted once again. Also, Daniel petitioned the king, and he set Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel sat in the gate of the king. So Daniel becomes this uh, person with influence and prominence in the kingdom of Babylon. Uh, I think that's interesting because we actually do have leaders in our country that are godly people. And because they're surrounded by ungodly people, we make the assumption that all politicians are bad. Well, well, they're just too involved in the politics. Well, if you're involved in politics at all, they're going to be involved in the politics. But I believe that there are still people in our cabinets and administration roles. We need to pray for them. And we need to pray for those that are not godly. In 1 Timothy, Paul calls Timothy to pray for their leaders. And at the time, the leaders were less godly than the ones we know now. They were very barbaric in the way they handled and in the way they persecuted Christians. But we are to pray for our leaders. And if you want to see things change, it starts with the leadership. So if all we do is complain about our leaders rather than praying for them, uh, then watch out because we're missing the point. If we were in that position, we'd have a lot of pressures on us too. So pray for them to make godly decisions. So God has placed Daniel in this position of authority. So fast forward to chapter 3, verse 1 through 7. Time moves on. Nebuchadnezzar has really seemingly made a profession of faith, right? He's, he's recognized the message of this dream, and he bows down to Daniel. He calls the, the God of heaven, Yahweh, Daniel's God, specifically the God of gods and the Lord of kings. He's the Lord over kings. But he's not really to a place yet where he's surrendered to him because he still has these things in his heart. He has this dream about a kingdom, and God gives him this dream, and, and there's still some pride in Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was a very, very foul man. He's a very, very uh, harsh man. And so, you know, you could imagine it would take quite a bit to break through the candy shell. So in chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Nebuchadnezzar, the king, made an image of gold, whose height was 60 cubits, and its width, 6 cubits. And it was about 90 feet tall, if you can imagine it. He set it up in the plain of Dura, in the province of Babylon. The plain of Dura was, uh, I would describe it kind of like one of our very large airports, a very flat and a very spread out surface, a surface about six miles south of Babylon. And King Nebuchadnezzar sent word to gather together the satraps, the administrators, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. King Nebuchadnezzar had a very large kingdom, so he called together every delicate, delegate, not delicate, delicate and ruler to this area to dedicate this image. 
And he called all of the rulers. So the satraps, the administrators, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered together for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And then a herald cried out. You know what a herald is, right? In, in early colonial, we had the town crier, you know, two if by sea. And what, what was it? You know, the, the story of uh, Paul Revere. And, and there was the town crier. Or in many cases, in small towns, they had the place of meeting, which was usually a church with a bell like the one we have on ours. And they would ring the bell and then everyone would come together and they'd give the message, here's what's going on. They didn't have email. They didn't have snail mail. They had, they had to get everyone's attention. In early Israel, they would blow a trumpet and it was a sound for a solemn assembly to get together and have a family meeting or a na- national meeting. And in this case, they had um, a herald who cried out aloud, to you it is commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that at the time that you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the harp, the lyre, and the psaltery, in symphony with all kinds of music, you shall fall down and worship the gold image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. Now think about this. A herald is someone that's proclaiming something. We are called to be heralds for the gospel, the good news. And to the world, our good news sounds like this, if we're not careful. You shall come and worship Jesus, and if you don't, you'll be thrown into the fiery furnace. But is that the good news? No. The herald that we are to be says, hey, God is going to judge all unrighteousness. But since all man has fallen short of the glory of God, we are given the opportunity to be deposited into our account God's righteousness on our behalf because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. Come to him and trust him in faith. Enjoy a loving relationship with him and you shall be saved. Repent and be saved. You will not have to endure the judgment. And if you don't, there will be judgment, but God is not willing that any should perish. Jesus did not come to condemn like Nebuchadnezzar is here, but Jesus came to set us free from our sins and the shame and to be forgiven. But that's not the message that this herald has. This herald says, uh, if you don't, you'll be cast in the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. And he was the king, so he could say that. So at that time, when all the people heard the sound of the horn, the flute, the harp, and the lyre in symphony with all kinds of music, all the people, nations, languages, fell down and worshipped the gold image which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Interesting. So what Warren Wearsby said, he's a commentator that I read when I study, he said, the people were happy to conform to the king's wishes as long as he spared their lives and gave them what they needed. Isn't that interesting? How often do we do that with our leaders? I'll do whatever you want as long as you give me what I need and you spare my life. Hey, we're all alive, we're all safe, and therefore I'll do whatever my leader says. These people were the conformers of their day. Everyone in our communities, everyone in our towns, everyone in our nation, uh, we all 
cry out, I want to be free to be an individual. I've got my rights, and I want to live as I want to live. I want to be unique, and yet most people, if you really look at it, are not unique. They're doing what everyone else is doing, just in a slightly different fashion. Uh, They are uh, crying out to the gold images, success, uh, um, finances, uh, education, all the things that are not bad, but if they become our God, if they become what we place our hope in, then, then they're going to be nothing short of just a golden image that ultimately is nothing. It's a dead idol. It cannot save, it cannot deliver, cannot give us peace, cannot give us hope. And so in this same way, this group of people is just doing what their leader told them to do because they have fear of death. This image was made in defiance to the dream about his kingdom being short-lived. I truly believe that Nebuchadnezzar saw this dream and he goes, you know what? I'll build that statue myself, and it's going to be made of gold. And in the kingdom of Babylon, historical record shows us that this was not a gold-dipped idol. This wasn't just like a 90-foot-tall statue, like the Statue of Liberty, made out of a cheaper metal that they were like, okay, now cover it in gold. You know, like they take those DQ cones and you get the dipped with the chocolate on the outside. No, this was solid gold, 90 feet tall, solid gold. This is the kind of riches that Nebuchadnezzar had at his disposal. And you've heard the adage, money equates to power in this life. He was using his power. The people that bowed down and worshipped an image of Nebuchadnezzar himself were bowing down to his authority, his rule, and his provision for them. He was their God already anyway. This just solidified the truth and revealed that to everyone. And so he was not satisfied with a short-lived kingdom. He wanted it to last forever. Verse 8 through 12. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and accused the Jews. They spoke and said to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that everyone here who hears the sound of the horn, the flute, the harp, the lyre, the psaltery, and symphony with all kinds of music shall fall down and worship the gold image. Whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the midst of the fire, burning fiery furnace. And then they specify, verse 12, there are certain Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, And these men, O king, have not paid due regard to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the gold image which you have set up. I think this is interesting because who is accusing these three men? Who's pointed them out? The people whose lives they saved in chapter 2. About 10 to 20 years ago, they were going to be all killed because they couldn't give the dream that Nebuchadnezzar made. Ungodly people do not care what you do for them to benefit them. That does not mean we shouldn't do that. They were benefited by Daniel seeking his God, getting the dream, interpreting it, and by doing so, their lives were saved. They were not brutally murdered. Their houses were not turned into, as the old King James says, a dunghill. Instead, their lives were spared. And yet, when it comes down to it, they were still jealous of these three guys because they were given positions of prominence over all these other ones that were willing to bow. So they were looking for a way to get those, guys, those three guys out of the way to get their positions. And when you want someone else's position and you'll throw them under the bus to get it, watch out. 
It's a dangerous position to be in because you'll end up, by your hatred for them, getting them murdered, or at least trying to. Um, hatred leads to murder. Jesus spoke specifically about that. So Nebuchadnezzar, hearing about this, verse 13, responds, or I'd like to say he reacts. You know the difference between a response and a reaction? A response is when somebody does something and you respond after thinking. A reaction is what happens when you go, you know, like as soon as it happens. That's me most of the time, you know, but, uh, you know, God's changing that about me. Um, This week being on steroids has not helped that. As a matter of fact, it's kind of hyped up what I normally am, and I'm like, Lord, help me. (laughs) But, But we react to people more times than we respond to them. And I would encourage you, as we get ready to read about Nebuchadnezzar, uh, consider your own self. Do you react to people, or do you respond to them? Nebuchadnezzar is an angry, furious man, and he is multiple times in this book, three chapters in, multiple times he's already done exactly what we're going to read. Nebuchadnezzar, in a rage and fury, gave the command to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar spoke saying to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the gold image which I have set up? Now, if you are ready, at the time you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the harp, the lyre, and the psaltery and symphony with all kinds of music, and you fall down and worship the image which I have made, then good. He, he basically gives them an ultimatum. He's given them a second shot, but not really if you think about it. Like, hey, you got another shot at this. Now, I want you to think about what they're going through here. There are people in today's day and age that are told, deny Jesus or I will blow your head off. That's not something that's not going on. That's something that's probably happening this moment. You know, we've come so far in our world, right? There are still people that are basically forced to deny the name of Jesus in order to stay alive. And there are people that are courageous that no one will ever know about until heaven that are saying, I will not do it. I will not deny the name of my Lord. Think about that. How much does it take us to deny the name of our Lord? How much does it take us, and I'm guilty of this, I sit down to a meal with my coworkers, the Lord keeps prompting me, just pray over your meal. And I, I just fail over and over again. A simple act of obedience. There's no gun to my head. There's no fiery furnace. You know, so I would challenge you. We don't necessarily get asked whether or not to deny the Lord as far as who we call the Lord. But many times we deny the Lord just by the way that we kind of water ourselves down when we're around non-believers. And in this case, these men say some things that are pretty profound and challenge me. Verse 15 Well, he's already said in verse 15, if you'll bow down uh, to the statue which I have made, then good. But if you do not worship, you shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? Who is the God who will deliver you? He's forgotten so soon that there was a God that already delivered them and gave them the interpretation of the dream. So verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. Notice they don't say, O King Nebuchadnezzar, live forever, like the other guy said. 
They say, O King Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you this, in this matter. If that is the case, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, but if not, he will deliver us, but if he doesn't, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. We know the consequences. We've counted the cost. We know that God will deliver us from you no matter what. Even if you throw us in the furnace and we burn alive, we are delivered to our final destination. We'll go home. But if he does deliver us, we still are not going to bow down to you. And so there's faith there that I think we could learn from. The but if not part of this is something that we need to pass on and we need to learn from ourselves. God can heal in all circumstances. But if not, he's still God. I, I struggled with that this week. God can uh, save people's lives miraculously. But if not, he's still good. And in this case, they are saying, God can deliver us from you, O king. But if not, let it be known to you, we're still not going to bow down and worship. We're still not going to give up our integrity. We're still not going to compromise our faith. So then Nebuchadnezzar was full of fury. Imagine that. And the expression on his face changed toward Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He spoke and commanded that they heat the furnace seven times more than it was usually heated. I take this to mean seven times hotter than the furnace was made to be heated. Now, think about it. Most of their stuff is made out of brick and mortar. And to make brick, you had to bake them. So this furnace is so large that you could go into it, stack the bricks in there, heat up the furnace, and cook them. So throwing people in there is no big deal because it's big enough for people to go in. It's not like we would think like a furnace in our home. So he says, heat it up seven times more than it was usually heated, and he commanded certain mighty men of valor who were in his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their coats, their trousers, and their turbans, and their other garments, and were cast into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, because the king's command was so urgent, and the furnace exceedingly hot, the flame of the fire killed the men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. His rage is causing him to get rid of some of his best soldiers. They die. As a result of his quickness to react, he makes very dumb decisions, like me the other night. I was infuriated. I, I can't even tell you what was still going on. But I got so mad, and I'm confessing this, and to show you I'm human too, I broke our trash can. I got mad. The lid wouldn't open. I was frustrated. So I took my arm. It was one of those little swingy style ones. And I went, kabam, and I hit the top. Now that trash can lid is very helpful. When you put dirty diapers in there, and that lid stays shut, it smells better in the house. But instead, I reacted, I hit the trash can, and the plastic gave way. And because of that, I smell stinky diapers all the time. Now, I can take them out more often, but I don't. And so the reality is, in our rage, when we make quick, split-second decisions without thinking, and we react to our emotions, 
We do like Nebuchadnezzar. We destroy some of the things that benefit us the most. And I will also say to you grievously that my son for the next 40 minutes thought it was okay to throw things. He, he watched my example, and he started going on a rage. And I could not get him to settle down. And he's one of the most happy kids I've ever met. But because of my influence on him, that can happen. So, how we react matters. But back to Nebuchadnezzar. His are way worse than ours, right? <laughs> Nebuchadnezzar, he kills some of his best men in trying to destroy these three godly men. And these three men, verse 23, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they fell down bound into the midst of the burning fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished. The old King James says he was astonied. That's kind of a fun word, astonied. It just means astonished. His mind was blown. He was, his mind was blown by what he saw. And for King Nebuchadnezzar, this is important because he depends upon his sight. He has no insight. He has no faith. Everything that he sees and tastes and touches, he believes. And so he has to see something practical happen in order for his soul to be affected in any way. So he sees with his eyes and he is astonished. And he says, he, it says he rose in haste and he spoke saying to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? He wasn't believing what he was seeing. And the response of his advisors was, true, O king. We sent three people into the fire bound. And then it says, look, he answered, I see four men loose walking in the midst of the fire and they're not hurt. And the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. There's one, Heather. There's Jesus. Heather's always texting me. You said Jesus is all over in the Old Testament. I said, yeah, he is. And I believe this is pre-incarnate Christ showing up in the fiery furnace with three, these three men that were willing to say, we will not bow. We trust our God. Unless God allows these kinds of trials to come into our lives, we, our faith is tested Many times we won't get to be in the midst of the fire with Jesus. Now, I will agree, being in the midst of any trial is not fun. But how many times do you get to fellowship with Jesus in suffering? Not many. But when you do, it's, it's something that's indescribable. It's sweet. He says, the fourth is like the Son of God. Now, Nebuchadnezzar did not have an idea of God most high yet. But in this case, the phraseology is lost in translation, I believe, where what it means is, if God were to have a son, this man looks like what he would look like. If God were to have a son, he would look like the fourth guy that's in there. He didn't look like the other three. He could describe him. Now, if you ever looked through flames and tried to see something, like it's all wavy and there's heat and it's not clear, he saw clearly that the three men that he knew he threw in there were alive and walking around and unbound. And he also saw that there was a fourth. Let me also submit this to you. Do you know that trials, in many cases, are the things that strip us of things that we don't need anymore? The ropes that were tying them are what kept them enslaved and tied up and unable to move. The things that God allows to be burned away from our lives in the midst of trials 
are the things we really don't need. And we come out of the trial, usually unscathed, but also set free from some, some things that God was trying to get out of our lives anyway. You ever notice when you're sick and you can't get up out of bed, all of a sudden, a bunch of the stuff you worry about, you don't even care about anymore. Our kids were beating each other up the other day, and they weren't really like hurting each other, but they were like wrestling. And usually we're hover parents, so we're like, oh, oh, stop, you know, one of them's going to get hurt. When we were sick, we were just like, work it out. We don't feel good. And you know what? When they got done, they both apologized to each other. We didn't have to do it, you know? And I'm not saying that's always the rule. I'm just saying that many times we have idols in our lives and things that we trust in. And when we are hurting and those things can't really help us or save us, we let go of them and go, you know, that really doesn't matter. Why do I even care? Why am I spending that portion of my life on that thing? And God just removes it. He burns it away. Trials are important. Let me turn to a couple of scriptures to back that up, because otherwise it's just my opinion. James chapter 1. James chapter 1, verse 2 through 4 says this, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. God uses trials to mature you and make you complete, to add to you the things that you lack. Um, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Peter writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now, for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen you love, though now you do not see him, yet believing you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, which is the salvation of your souls. God uses trials to refine your faith, to prove that it's really faith or that it's really not. He refines it. He makes it more precious like refining gold. And then one more place in Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Paul writes, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also glory, means that we shine brighter in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance. You cross-country runners know that. Like, if you run cross-country, you have to continue to bear up under the pain and the exhaustion, but it produces, as you do that daily, perseverance. Hey, I can go a little bit further today. I did it yesterday, and so I can do more. It's like working out. It's like weightlifting. He says, tribulations produce perseverance, and perseverance produces character, and character, hope. 
and our hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So back in Daniel, now that I gave up my, my bookmark there, it's going to take me a minute. Ezekiel, Daniel, there we go. So back in Daniel, verse 19. No, not verse 19. Verse 26, Then Nebuchadnezzar, he went near the mouth of the burning fiery furnace and spoke, saying, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. How much humiliation do you think this gave to the king? How, how humbled do you think he was? He was the one that ordered them in there to their death. And now he has his mouth shut, and he has to open it to say, come back out. And then they do. And notice, he says, uh, the satraps, the administrators, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together, and they saw these men on whose bodies, number one, the fire had no power. The hair of their head was not singed, nor were their garments affected. And look at this. The smell of fire wasn't even on them. How many of you guys can barbecue without the smell of fire being on you for like at least the next day? Or go camping. Or wintertime's coming. If you ever load your furnace with wood, if you burn wood at your house. Like I, I go to work after loading the wood in the morning. I just put like two sticks in there. I smell like fire. They were inside a furnace an inferno, and their clothes were not burned, their hair wasn't singed. How many of you guys ever went somewhere and there were people that decided it'd be a good idea to hold their drink and then jump over a campfire? My dad used to do that all the time. He's so proud of himself, and then I used to do it too, but I mean, it was his fault. But, you know, you see the flames go up, and you're like, hey, I've seen this on TV. There's TV shows where dumb guys do this all the time. They're fine. If you do it, you'll hear all of a sudden there'll be a little a singe. That's, that's the hair on your arms melting or the, you know, your jeans getting a little... They weren't affected at all. Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel, in mind that's all caps, and delivered his servants who trusted in him, and they have frustrated the king's word and yielded their bodies that they should not serve nor worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree that any people, nation, or language which speaks anything amiss against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be cut in pieces. Here he goes again. Shall be cut in pieces, and their houses shall be made an ash heap, because there is no other god who can deliver like this. In chapter 3, verse, um, I guess it was in excuse me, chapter 3, verse 16. Or is it 15? No, verse 16, he said, Who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? And then he goes down to the bottom of chapter 3, and it says, Because there is no other God who can deliver like this. He's made a very specific statement. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. So again, they're tested and promoted. They're promoted in this ungodly nation. that They can't be touched. Why? Is there something special about these men? No. They have decided, no matter what happens, they will not bow the knee. Notice what it says there. 
He's delivered his servants who trusted in him. If you want to be delivered through your trials, trust in him. Nebuchadnezzar got it, and they frustrated the king's word. But notice what it says there. It says, they yielded their bodies that they should not serve nor worship any god except their own god. They yielded their bodies. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. That's what Jesus said. So let me ask you this morning, as we look at these men, are you yielded to the Lord? There's some prophecy that goes along with this passage, but I'm out of time and I'll share it next week. But what I want to take away from this is, are you overcoming in trials? Are you overcoming at all? Or you feel like you're constantly beat on and you're having no victory? Step one, trust the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Lean not on your own understanding. You know, they could have very easily said, you know what, God wants us to use us here. He doesn't want us dead. And so therefore, it must not be God's will for us to suffer. And I will say that, that is, that's a lie from the pit of hell. God allows us to suffer just like he allowed his son to suffer. It can be God's will for us to suffer. And I'm not wishing that on anybody. But I will say that if he does allow you to suffer, it's his best. And when you come out the other side, he will bring you out the other side with joy and expressible. It won't make any sense. He'll bring you out the other side unbound from things that were chaining you. Many times it's sin. And when he brings you out the other side, he will glorify his name amidst people that don't know him. And many of them Eventually, Nebuchadnezzar uh, bows the knee to Jesus. Now, he doesn't know his name is Jesus, but he bows his knee, uh, this pagan man, this leader of the, the greatest nation of all time that's spoken of still in the book of Revelation. He bows the knee to the King of kings and the Lord of lords willingly because of the testimony of these three men. We'll get into why Daniel wasn't in this story next week. So as we get ready to take communion... I want you to consider these things. Have I truly bowed the knee to Jesus and said, you know what? Nothing else matters. Have I truly said, Lord, my life is yours, whatever you want to do with it? Or am I still trying to grapple on and keep it for myself? Because if you are, you're going to be miserable and you're going to be conforming with everybody else, whether you think it's going to be your own brand of conforming to this world. But you won't be like Jesus at the end of it. So let's spend some time with the Lord.